The Missing Wingman Trust is the charity that supports our Air Force families when someone is killed, injured, wounded or ill. The Missing Wingman Trust is a brilliant initiative which provides uh, support to families, Air Force families. Yeah, the Missing Wingman Trust is our only charity that uh, the whole family of the Air Force um, well, it supports that family of the Air Force. Um, not only service uh, personnel from the Air Force, but also families who uh, might find it difficult in, in certain times. The trust goes wider than just uh, those service people. It, uh, it looks after that wider family. All those people associated with the Air Force, the families, the kids. A great cause for the people of, uh, people of the Air Force, both those serving and our just as important families. Being part of the military family, um, there's always uh, sadness and either health or death and so it's lovely to know that um, family are going to be looked after. It is an opportunity for us to put something back into the Air Force family. One of our major fundraisers this year is the Wingman Brunch. We're asking people to host a meal and guests pay to attend. All the proceeds go to the Trust. It's a brilliant idea and it's a brilliant occasion. It's a nice opportunity for people to get together. It's easy. They're just going to love coming to your house, sitting around, having breakfast. The idea is not necessarily to run a brunch, but just simply to uh, hold a function, host a function, get your friends together, and not necessarily just Air Force people either. It's easy. I'd encourage everyone to have a go. It's easy. You can do it as easy, as flash, or as simple as you like. Not only is it a bit of fun, but it's a chance to uh, do something worthwhile. Great time to just meet new people and catch up with old friends. Then it's an opportunity for all of us to uh, take part and to put something back into the service. Details, decorations, resources and recipes are on our website. You can make a real difference to Air Force families when they need help most. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening, and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. 
aviation-extended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm your host for the Australian segment, the Wings Over Australia bit, James Kitely. And we're here with Daniel Lay. Hi, Daniel. Hi, how are you going? Great. Now, most people uh, out there who uh, know anything about World War II aircraft and um, history and the Pacific has probably come across your name online in several sites, uh, Pacific Wrecks, and uh, you've got your own database. Tell, tell, tell us about that. Uh, well, uh 2012 I started the uh, RAF Casualty Database which lists uh, or gives a profile for every member of the Royal Australian Air Force that uh, were killed during a wartime and what we're trying to do is put together which crew member was uh, killed on board which aircraft and put uh, historical details for each, photos of wrecks if they exist or uh, artefacts that are now on display as well as put together photographs of each serviceman and uh, grave photos for each one. quite a big project. It's been going now for, like I say, three and a half, four years, and got a hell of a long way to go. So. Yeah, I can imagine. How many, uh, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Uh, there were over 11,000. Wow. Um, there are still over 3,100 still missing from the Second World War alone. Yeah. Um, we're concentrating on getting the details of the missing mainly, and mainly for the moment in Australia and the southwest Pacific. So. It's quite quite a significant number, and uh, it's going to keep you going for a long time. That it will. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, uh, we're able to find some details during our research that might lead to some identifications, whether it be of um, new wrecks or locations of downed aircraft, or um, identifying unknown uh, graves. Yeah, and. Uh we're actually uh, just talking a minute ago, you're doing something else now, you're getting into the archaeology side of things. Yes, uh, this year I started a Bachelor of Arts degree at uh, University of New England, um, studying archaeology, um, mainly to deal with historical archaeology of the Second World War, especially aviation archaeology. Uh, one thing that, or technology that I've actually started with in the past few months is something called photogrammetry. Okay. Uh, now this has been used around the world by archaeologists for the past few years to digitally preserve historic sites. Um, Recently with things going on in Syria with uh, ISIS and uh, the monuments that they've been destroying, um, they've been using uh, old photos to recreate, say, Palmyra and other archaeological sites. What I'm trying to do is the same sort of thing with wreck sites, historic aircraft and so on. So it provides a, a 3D model, uh, but it's got the actual texture and colour and everything yeah. because it's from photographs. What it does is it takes photographs of the item, the software then works out exactly where each photograph was taken and then builds a 3D model of the object that you've taken a photo and then applies the textures that appear in the photograph. Right, it's something that you really have to see to understand because uh, you know if this is 
radio basically and, <laughs> and it's, it, it is hard to describe but um, well, if I can jump in there um, one of the things that's fascinating is uh, Daniel um, shared some photographs uh, a little while ago about this and um, I think one of the ones you put up and said Does anybody, can anybody tell what this is and I said well it's obviously a chunk of Hudson because um, I'm pretty familiar with our Hudsons and um, uh, but it was looking at a Hudson in a very different way and I could tell that what he'd done was, was what we used to call stitching together photographs but I uh, talked a bit more about it and I thought it was fascinating that this is another layer really to me of, of how we uh, explore the past and, and um, how we can learn about things and there's a basic archaeological principle I understand Daniel that um, if you're doing an archaeological dig as traditionally or exploration one of the rules that you should abide by is to leave stuff for follow, fellow archaeologists in the future to come back and with technology or tools or techniques that we don't have now be able to do something new and this is one of those new things. Well that's exactly it like this is just basically a form of a site recording so what we can do is take all these photos, put it together in the software and then either keep it for the future or be able to distribute it to other archaeologists so instead of them having to go to a particular site they can just look it up on their computer and go okay that's where this is, that's where this is and so on and so forth. Um, at, at the moment I've done a couple of uh, crash sites as well as um, a complete aircraft, the uh, DC-2 based at Albury. I'm currently working on a model of that. Okay. Um, now it's currently being put away eventually uh, for restoration. Um, but my idea is, well, seeing it now, it's going to be the last time as it is now. Of course it is sitting there, almost derelict, falling apart. Um, so it will look a lot better once restored, but I'd like to preserve it is or how it has been for the past 13, 15 years, something like that. Yep. Okay. Um, now, in order to get these 3D models in your computer, you also have to actually go and take the photographs, and so that means you've been up and around the jungles of New Guinea and, uh, <laughs> and, and Solomon's or places like that. Yeah, I've been to uh, New Guinea four times over the past uh, ten years, I think it is, um, taking plenty of photos up there. Um, unfortunately, we didn't know about this technology yeah. the last on the last trip, um, but more recently uh, with a... Uh, Open day at the uh, Aubrey Airport, um, I was able to get access to the DC-2 here, which I was able to take 2,000 photos of the one aircraft from absolutely every angle just for this purpose. So um, that includes using phone, using an SLR cannon, as well as a GoPro. So, um, if, I can, if I can just jump in there again, Daniel, one of the things... Um, so we're actually at Albury Airport right now, and um, it's a very historic place in Australian aviation too, because um, this is the... Uh, the town where the uh, IVA uh, DC-2 of KLM was lost. Uh, the very briefly, the story, fascinating, true story. The townsfolk, uh, they, they signalled with the town lights the name of the town in the dark to this lost KLM crew. Um, and they uh, got cars down to the race course. There's no airfield there, here then, back then. Uh, lit up the landing ground and they managed to bring in this, uh, this DC-2 airline into the, the race course. Um, and the following day pulled it out of the mud and the guys got, a, got out of it and managed to fly the rest of the way to Flemington to, uh, to win the, um, uh, the uh, England to Australia 1934 McRobertson Air Race. So it's a terrific, that's a very, very short version of a terrific, terrific story. But um, So we're here now and it's, uh, we're in the uh, Iver Cafe and Bar and there's all sorts of you know, local tourism things but lots of DC-2 stuff. And they've had a DC-2 here um, on display painted as Iver. Tragically the original aircraft was lost uh, a month later in the Middle East on on a, a Christmas mail run in December 1934 um, but they've had another DC-2 ex-Australian Air Force uh, here and that was on a memorial for many many years uh, wasn't it and um, uh, sadly uh, 
rotted, as aircraft outside will do. Um, and I think this is a really interesting sort of detail of what, what uh, um, Daniel's doing. In a way, this is a few, am I, I'm right in saying a kind of a practice, but actually what you're also doing is you're taking a census of this aircraft with significant ageing and uh, structural problems as it is today. It's like an absolute, as you said, a site survey in archaeological terms, but it's a fascinating thing because um, the guys are going to have to do major restoration. Thankfully now it looks like they will be able to do that and rebuild the aircraft, but it's going to be a metal piece by metal piece forward or backwards throughout. Yet what you're capturing is, is as it is right now. Yeah, well that's it. Like this um, uh, ex-RAF aircraft that's been here as a memorial, um, it was here up on poles, I think, for something like 20 years. Um, it was then pulled down because it was falling apart, and it's now been sitting outside in uh, a corner of the airport for about, I think it's 13 years. And there's been numerous debates and fights over what should be done. Should it be restored here? Should it be sold off? Should it be even scrapped? Um, so it's good, I think, to at least capture that side of the story before it goes on to its next um, life, I guess. And the other aspect is you have the, um, the aircraft that are up in the jungle in New Guinea. What do you think needs to be done with them? Should they be brought out or should they be left there for archaeologists? I can see um, arguments for both sides. Um, personally, I'd like to see them stay there and at least be studied. Yep. Um, sure, I, I can see uh, that they can be brought back and either restored or displayed um, or conserved rather in their lost state or whatever. Um, but I think before any of that should be done, then a proper survey on each site should be completed and recorded and then made public rather than go in, grab what you want, pull it out and you know add it to this plan over here and then the history of that actual piece is lost unless you go, well this piece on this aircraft is from plane number XYZ. And that's how I feel in a nutshell. <laughs> it should work. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't happened that way up until now. Um, but, but I think moving forward, that sort of thing will happen in the future. So. I think for, pe for people not so familiar with the situation, I mean, um, Papua New Guinea particularly has been a real um, area for uh, warbirders and restorers to uh, to go and, and get back many aircraft that were extinct unless yeah. they were found there. Um, and we can think of numerous uh, aircraft on the warbird scene and any muse in museums as well that are are there simply because um, they were able to be brought out of Papua New Guinea. Um, and I think it's interesting what you are just saying there, which is both what you're doing now is very modern. I, I'm finding it very, very exciting. I'm probably not excited about taking 2,000 photographs of one aeroplane, but uh, I can see how that works. Um, on the other hand, it's actually just a modern version of a very traditional archaeological practice of before you move anything, you record obsessively. We can all think of those great photographs of the archaeologists of yesteryear, and indeed underwater now, where they have a grid plan, you know, on a, on a, like a... Like a uh, well, just a grid, wire grid that they hold down and they measure off stuff and they're putting clotting stuff. What you're doing is an electronic version of that in a way. What, actually, what extras do you think this is bringing to that process, would you say? One other thing that I'm kind of excited about with some of it is for MIA recovery. So the people that are missing up there in, I guess, lost aircraft, if someone was to go in with a camera, take all these photos, it doesn't have to be 2,000, it can be less than that, mm. um, 
load it into this software and then create a 3D model, then your MIA investigators and recovery people, whether it be for the Australian Air Force or for the Americans or whoever, can then virtually walk around the site without actually going there and putting boots on ground, able to go, well, here's the cockpit, what's it look like, what's the condition, what are we going to find, and what do we need to bring to actually pull out. It's also a snapshot in time, isn't it? It's a particular yeah, point yeah. when um, you do that record. And I think going back to Palmyra, one of the things I thought was very exciting was actually here is here is a wonderful use for all those holiday photographs that we take when we go places and they actually have a benefit to really our, our whole human history that if we can if Palmyra can be recreated as a 3D model it's not the original it's not a substitute for the original but it is stopping us losing it. Can you put it into a 3D print? <laughs> I haven't tried, but theoretically, um, actually at a conference in, uh, I think it was September, uh, down at Geelong, uh, they had a 3D printed model of a uh, submarine wreck down oh, yeah. in yeah. off Victoria, and I think a similar sort of uh, method was used to create that model. Um, the models that I've uploaded to uh, Sketchfab, which is a website, and I'll give you the links for those, um, does give you the option to download as a model it would, could then be pumped into a 3D printer. So. I can see another uh, really good aviation connected uh, archaeological or historic use here and that's if, uh, if an airfield is coming up for disposal and is going to be turned into houses, say for example in New Zealand we had the most historic airfield in the country, Wigram, which is mm -hmm. now all houses, if you'd gone around and taken photos of all the buildings you could create a model that's 3D and you could walk through it you know, in, in, in the Wigram Museum or something like that. That's something that I can see a really mm, good use absolutely. for this. Well, if, when you go up to Tamora in a couple of days, you'll see there that they've got a model of the airfield. Um, it's basically the same sort of thing, that um, you're recreating it as it was um, and just presenting that to people. Instead, this time, instead of being a model or a physical model, it's a 3D model that you can load on your screen and essentially access from anywhere. Right, right, and you could walk through it like a video game. That you could. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. I, I can see a lot of uh, scope for the future for this um, in, in all sorts of history and aviation, but particularly in, in your case, you want to get into the aviation side, of course. That's it, yeah. Like it, it comes into a lot of history, a lot of heritage, a lot of archaeology. Um, it's just that what I'm interested in is the aviation side. Yeah, so. yeah. Absolutely. There is, uh, there is one downside we haven't mentioned so far, which is it really eats memory on your computer, doesn't it? That it does. <laughs> uh, one of these renders yeah, takes overnight, at least, um, to do it at the high res. It looks like it's going to take something like four or five days. So. <laughs> and, and once you've got that all rendered as a 3D model, can you just put that up on a site that anyone can access and look at in 3D? That you can. Um, there's a website called Sketchfab. Very similar to YouTube, except in, instead of videos, it's 3D models that you can click on and then rotate around the site. Um, and also include things like uh, notations, so you could say, well, this part of the model is, in this case that we've got in front of us, a wing. Yep, and you just click on a number and it just pops up with telling you what it is. Yeah, that is yeah. it. Fantastic. And you can add in further details of exactly what the model is and where it's located or whatever. Okay. I can also see an application... You know, down the track with uh, 3D modelling for documentaries or for even just for, for, for example, a restoration website, uh, sorry, a, a restoration workshops website, um, just showing around their workshop and mm. what's going on at, at that particular time and things yeah, like that. It could be used for quite a few things, um, just to get public access, I guess, to a certain site. Yeah. So, um, 
How can people get hold of you if they want you to come along and do some 3D modelling of their aircraft or their, or if they've got anything that might be of um, use to this kind of yeah. technology? Um, well, I'm on Twitter with the at Daniel J. Lay, the last name spelled L-E-A-H-Y, um, or by email, at, uh, which is daniel.j.lay at outlook.com. Okay. And how do we get into the um, sketch <laughs> Uh, if you just go to sketchfab.com and then slash Daniel J. Lay, there will be uh, the two models that I've currently got up there. And once more are completed, they'll be uploaded too. Great. And we'll add these links and uh, a couple of the pictures that Daniel's very kindly provided uh, for us uh, on, the, on the website as on well. On the show page, yeah. On the show page, indeed. And um, just jumping back to your experiences in PNG and so on, can you give us perhaps a, one or two stories that you feel are particularly indicative or explain what uh, you know why you do this? What, what's well, the first trip that I took up there wasn't actually aircraft related. Uh, uh, my grandmother's brother-in-law was killed with the 39th Battalion up at um, San Ananda, and it was just a matter of being the first member of the family to actually get to that battlefield walking along that part of the San Ananda track was a strange experience it, 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 quite emotional um, that was probably the one thing that does stick in my mind while I was up there um, and then visiting uh, the crash site uh, last year of uh, Hudson A16201 which was uh, Warren Cowan's um, Hudson now he took on uh, a flight of Japanese zeros alone in a Hudson bomber um, and was eventually shot down um, and just being at that historic site was again quite emotional. So. In fact if I can chip, chip in there another in the podcast series this is the, the pilot and his crew of, of Gunners uh, uh, wireless operators uh, navigator would be the other crew member wouldn't it um, that we talked about with uh, Steve Deeth uh, who's oh. a, obviously an experienced Hudson pilot in the modern era one of the few who's able to do that and um, there are some fascinating accounts of Cowan's last battle which all come from the Japanese all his he and his crew were, were killed outright um, and famously one of those pilots was a, a very famous Japanese ace um, who after the war recommended that, that Cowan should have been uh, decorated by Australia for that, that particular achievement uh, and sadly the, the, uh, the government decided that wasn't appropriate but uh, it's great to have that uh, record and I think what's interesting is we have different pieces of a jigsaw puzzle here we have um, there is a famous Australian uh, TV program uh, Australian Story which uh, covers uh, Cowan's experience we have us here talking about that particular uh, story too which again you know uh, keeps it keeps it alive um, and uh, obviously the Hudson itself uh, flying at tomorrow is another element and also you know you're exploring the rack I mean those kind of things when you know the story must be very effective that they are, it's, it's good to get the whole story in these sorts of cases rather than just one angle of mm. here's the Australian story documentary or here's a flying Hudson or whatever. It's the whole story that actually then commemorates or remembers the loss of those airmen. Absolutely, yep, agree with that. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a terrific, uh, terrific thing. I love seeing this mix, and, and I'm sure you're the same, Daniel, I think we're on the same page here, that this fascinating mix between heritage and history on the one hand and cutting-edge technology, and, and I think one of the things is we can all be a bit sceptical of computers. I, um, Dave's heard me saying rude words to my computer when it hasn't been behaving over the last few days while he's been staying, and um, so we can be very frustrated by technology and, and computing, and there is an element where we overlook that if you turn stuff into pixels or into a binary code, effectively what's happening all at the bottom here, you can then take that data out and, and manipulate in new and different ways and I think one element that's fascinating we touched on but just to reiterate 
the fact that people taking photographs for tourism purposes or just for mapping a site or just a, a quick snapshot, you've got enough of them um, from different people, different times, different um, cameras. Um, if they're digitised, you can start pulling them together for this 3D model process. One other question, Daniel. Um, where do you see yourself going from here? Obviously, you, you're exploring some fascinating stuff. You're studying uh, the archaeology. Um, you've got some great ideas. Where do you go? Good question. <laughs> um, well, at the moment, I'm concentrating mainly on my studies. Yes. Um, only being a first-year undergraduate, even mature aid student, um, I've still got a way to go. Um, I hope to do honours and then maybe something after that in academia. Yep. Um, I'd like to see that aviation archaeology in, say, reporting of sites and uh, describing sites and uh, surveying of sites becomes more popular yeah. or uh, the standard, I guess, yeah. for crash sites and airfields and so on. And I'd like to get into that game one day, whether it be with a heritage department or uh, a separate business. In fact, that's an interesting point to pick up on. I think I was talking to some uh, uh, friends in the UK, and uh, in the UK there used to be an awful lot of crash sites of, of aircraft. Generally speaking, those have mostly been recovered now. Uh, whether they involved, um, you know, um, missing in action aircrew or, or were um, fatal accidents, as well as many, many more. Um, but the day's gone now. You can't really, f and, and in a way, that's a pity. Not that people were doing the wrong thing. I'm not saying that but uh, the field's clean. Mm. Um, Papua New Guinea there's, it's, and, and uh, a lot of the Pacific Islands, it's still a very changing situation. Uh, the, uh, the book, Pacific Aircraft Wrecks, I think the majority of those aircraft have probably been recovered now, but there's still a few left. And we're all thinking, I think, of um, the famous B-17 uh, Swamp Ghost, which uh, was taken out of a, um, a swamp in, in, um, in the Pacific and is circuitously went through Via Chino is now in, um, in Hawaii in the museum there. Um, now that's an aircraft which there's strong arguments as you touched on earlier between leaving it where it was, it was not decaying very quickly by natural causes but it was a tourist destination, it was um, getting damaged by people do, coming along in difficult way to, to get to it and take things out. As, and also where it is now, where it's out of situ, it, it, thankfully they're not restoring it to uh, airworthy aircraft which would effectively throw away all the, the, the heritage of that machine, much as it would be lovely to have one. Um, how do you see the, the sort of developments in wrecks and wreck recovery really happening in the next few years? Is there going to be diversity? I, to be honest, I don't know. Um, I think that the salvages do have to adopt, uh, or adapt to the new environment, I guess, of archaeology. Um, yeah. Whether that be have their own archaeologists come in and do a survey and a report and everything before pulling something out, I don't know how they want to do it. Um, we'll have to figure that one out as we move forward, I guess. I think, I think also another thing is there's been problems where people, for good reasons, have been secretive about some of mm. this stuff. As you said, identities or data of aircraft is lost because it gets incorporated to another restoration. And I'd just like to give a little note here to um, the recent book uh, on Hawker Hurricane Survivors um, by Gordon Riley, which I've just had for review. Very good book. He's got a section in the back where of identities that have since been lost um, because they've been incorporated, incorporated to other restorations. And I think it's good we're doing that now rather than pretending these never existed or never recovered and they disappear. So a big plea to anyone involved. Yes, we understand why you're doing those things, but um, let's try and capture that data for the, the bigger picture for the future. Yeah, that's it. Uh, the Pacific Rex side has been doing that for some time as Indeed. well with um, aircraft in New Guinea, Solomons and so forth. What we know anyway is put up onto the site. Um, to me it's, like we say, hiding it is just um, a loss of that history. 
um, for that one particular site. Sure, it's great to see a flying aircraft around uh, yeah. going to air shows and that. Um, just having a little note or whatever saying this includes parts of X and Y and Z. Yeah, all the records there. Yeah. 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 Oh, terrific. Yeah, well, really interesting stuff. It's, uh, this has been quite a different interview from the type that we've uh, had along the way on, the, on this um, tour, and it's been really good to meet you. I've come across you many times on, on, the, uh, on the internet, and it's great to put a face to name. And yeah, no, well, good to meet both of you. Indeed, absolutely. And to put your man on the spot, and I'd, I'd just like to say this is an area I'm passionately excited about. I, I think uh, other ways of looking at history and bringing archaeology and, and aviation together is a is a great thing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to your future career, Daniel. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. So am I. We'd like to keep following it. So yeah, yeah not a problem. Cool. Thank, thank you very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.